0: I'm Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. I don't know about you, but I'm a homo sapien, aka a pretentious way of saying human. And we humans have this evolutionary primal need to be seen, heard, witnessed, validated, and known. It gives us a sense that we are safe in the world and belong. In this digital age, the opportunity to be seen has expanded, in which the whole world has become our stage, with the possibility of being seen and observed by over four billion people. But when is enough enough? And what are the tools and devices we use to get recognized? And even more importantly, who do we become to maintain it? In this vulnerable and candid episode, I volley back and forth with the brilliant Olivia Amirtrano to talk about the science of the brain-gut relationship and how it's affected by trauma, the delicate balance between authenticity and authenticity porn, and how following our primal needs of being known leads to losing ourselves to our social avatar. Are we screwed? Let's find out. My guest, Olivia Amir or as most of us know her organic olivia has a massive fan base of over half a million followers for good reason she's an herbalist writer entrepreneur and podcast host with a mission to bridge the gap between western medicine's gifts and traditional herbalism's wisdom her journey began when she experienced various debilitating health issues that no western medical doctor could alleviate. As a young child, she knew that something was not quite right, but she couldn't put her finger on it. She sensed that her symptoms were interconnected at their root. For example, her anxiety and skin would flare up at the same time as their gastrointestinal pain. She decided to explore traditional Chinese medicine and consulted an herbalist. Her life transformed from that day forward. Olivia's life goal is to provide education, insight, and herbal blends that support individuals achieving optimal health. She develops tinctures, elixirs, capsules, and teas that allow people worldwide to access medical herbs that enhance everything from sleep and digestion to energy and mood. Organic Olivia's mission is to genuinely change people's lives through plant remedies. Here we go. Olivia, a.k.a. Organic Olivia, a.k.a. The Lean Machine, a.k.a. What the Juice, a.k.a. Terminator Uh, 3, a.k.a. my number one fan. Welcome to the show.
1: You could say that again. I am your number one fan. You're killing it.
0: Ah, you're killing it. I am so excited to this episode with you. Ever since I met you where I did your show, And in the first ninety seconds, you asked me my astrology, and then proceeded to tell me I'm toxic. Yeah, I was like, "This human sees me."
1: Yeah, and I still hold you to that. You're, you're still. (laughs) It hasn't changed my first impression.
0: I would not want to change your opinion. I mean, I, if anything, I just want to support you and how you see the world. I <laughs> mean, you. that's really what we're doing here today. What
1: a therapist answer. That's crazy. Are you about to therapize me?
0: I, well, we'll see how the episode goes. Oh, I no. Mean, if you need oh, it.
1: No. no, it's that toxic recognizes toxic. and
0: Oh,
1: I mean, listen, I also recognize you're like, what, a triple cancer? That's yeah, illegal. Cancer. That's a that's actually illegal. It's- I don't know how you were <laughs> born into this country. But essentially, no, like, I, I just think that there's a certain the way that we were using humor to severely deflect. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, like, you are me. So, fun.
0: I would say, yes, humor to deflect, humor to survive.
1: Yes, that's a good yeah. way to put it. Yeah, it, it is a survival mechanism. It's the only way to really get through difficult pain and to you know, help yourself stay afloat so you can get lessons out of that pain.
0: I think so. Oof, We're going to talk about that today. Now, Olivia, you're kind of a big deal. I mean, for those who don't know, Olivia is kind of a big deal. You have, Olivia, 462,108 followers.
1: 108.
0: Uh, oh, sorry. 462,107 followers. Now, I just unfollowed you. <laughs> did you get started on this path of being insta-famous? Talk me through you.
1: It's so funny that you referred to me as Lean Machine, which thank you so much. But it's funny because now that I'm full circle back to posting about fitness, it reminds me of my roots because before I became an herbalist, before I started posting about my health journey and how other people can improve their health with tangible information and tips, I started my Instagram originally just to document my first fitness journey when I was like 17 and going to Planet Fitness. And I would have like pictures of me like Planet
0: Fitness. Are they still alive?
1: Oh no no, they're still kicking. I only had a membership there because there was unlimited tanning bed usage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you are so bronze. <laughs>
1: Thanks. I mean, I I no longer participate in the tanning bed Olympics, but at one point in my life, yeah, I was like, oh yeah, like dad, I need a a Planet fitness membership. It's like 20 bucks a month, even though it was $10 if you didn't get the tanning bed. And then in the dead of winter, I'd come home and my parents would be like, wow, like you really got our Mediterranean jeans. And I was like, I know it's just so strong the way I've pulled them. So yeah, but I was also going to the gym, but anyway, so I started it as like documenting my fitness journey of me and my partner. And then as he and I started learning about the food system and genetically modified corn and soy and, you know, all of the things that are wrong, essentially, with the corporatized food system and chronic illness and why Americans are so sick and yada, yada. And I started to connect that with my own chronic symptoms. It morphed into this blog slash I guess I always use Instagram as a mini blog, but I also had a blog at the time where I just started to share information where I was like, this information changed my health. So I hope that it's going to change yours. How can I teach you to also learn myself? And it just became this really nice two-way information exchange.
0: When you talk about your health, I remember reading about you in a gossip magazine and, <laughs> you, it, <laughs> and it talked about like, you were a pretty sick kid. Like you had a oh lot of GI issues, a lot of significant health issues.
1: Literally, my parents were packing antibiotics into my Wendy's cheeseburgers every week. Like, I was always – and it's serious. I couldn't swallow pills. And all we did was eat fast food. Like, there was no, like, cooking whatsoever. So we were doing, like, Wendy's or popcorn chicken from KFC. Oh, my God. That was my addiction. Or whatever it was. And they would, like, crush up the antibiotics. But, yes, essentially, like, I had a lot of different, like, chronic infections. I was diagnosed with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which is really just a syndrome, right? There's no – Quote, like root cause. Oftentimes it does develop into something more significant, like an autoimmune disease, like colitis. But, you know, I was diagnosed with that and it was kind of a, this mystery illness where I was seeing gastroenterologists, I was on antispasmodic medications to try to help with the pain. I was bounced around to different doctors. I also had a lot of mental health struggles. I was on so many different SSRIs trying to find the right medication for me and I just wasn't really responsive to them. I was on a lot of antibiotics for acne. I had really cystic acne on my face and my back. And I started to notice these patterns where I was like, oh, wait a second. Yeah, when I take these antibiotics, not only does my skin clear up, but my gut issues are better and I'm not reacting to food as much. And then when I stop, all of this comes back. Is there something in my gut bacteria that's affecting my skin? And I started exploring the microbiome and gut infections and SIBO and all of that. And the gut skin axis was kind of my gateway into the gut brain axis and my mental health and everything else. And then I started to discover the herbs that could support me. And it was history from there.
0: Can we talk a little bit more about that gut-brain axis? I mean, back in the 90s before you were born, we had this book come out. <laughs> I actually don't know how old you are. I
1: was born in 90- 93.
0: Ah, I nailed it. Okay. Yeah. I'm just a few years younger than you. Uh, older. Yeah.
1: You, you know, you look it. You look younger.
0: I know. Girl, it's that <laughs> gut-brain axis I perfected. You know, we we used to call the gut the second brain. And I feel like since then, actually, a lot more research has come out about the delicate balance and the integral connections between, as you're saying, like the gut brain. and, And I'm wanting you to talk about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's on so many different levels and is broken down across the different systems of, I guess, interpreting the body that I enjoy studying and dabbling in. So while I'm not, I was. I'm definitely not an expert in Western medicine and science, but I love to read the science and incorporate it into the way that I see the world and practice and et cetera. I am very well trained in herbalism and did a lot of my studies in traditional Chinese herbalism. And there's this concept of dampness in Chinese medicine, which I'll come back to the gut-brain axis, I promise, but there's this concept of dampness in Chinese medicine.
0: Sometimes I get damp.
1: That no no, seriously and it's a, yeah. such a psychological concept as well and helped me so much with codependency once I realized that my damp gut was literally making me sticky to other people. Like it goes so deep. Oh wow. I have theories. I have a dissertation. But essentially there's this concept of dampness where in Chinese medicine it starts in the gut. So if your transformative function, if your digestive fire, your spleen chi, the thing that cooks your food and eventually extracts the nutrients from your food and transforms it, cannot transform the food that you're eating. And instead of being transformed, it sort of gets sticky and stagnant. This concept of dampness builds up in the gut. And that dampness can travel essentially to different areas of the body Dampness always wants to sink down in the body, so it can end up getting stuck in the lower jowl and manifesting as menstrual issues and growths and cysts and heavy periods and PCOS. It can essentially be mirrored to fatty liver. But there's also this dampness in the brain as the syndrome of dampness gets worse and it sort of starts to shoot up. And so in Chinese medicine, when someone is really damp, you can see it in their eyes because dampness mists the senses. Like, imagine someone on the street who is like, unfortunately, very mentally ill, for example, and is maybe using drugs because drugs create a lot of dampness. And I mean, like, you know, like street drugs, really hard drugs. And they're on the street and they're kind of like having an episode, right? And they're like preaching to no one there. You can see this glossiness in their eyes. They say that dampness like mists the orifices. See this glossiness? They're not really there. And that's the most extreme example of dampness in the mind. But there's so many other examples of dampness in the mind that relate to, a lack of self-awareness, a lack of perspective, brain fog, eventually Alzheimer's, depression, etc. It's, It's like such a pervasive concept and such an issue in the body. And really what you want to do in Chinese medicine is strengthen the body, strengthen the digestive fire so that the body can eventually transform and drain that dampness. Yeah. When you translate that to a Western lens and the gut-brain axis... That's essentially your gut bacteria becoming slowly imbalanced and dysbiotic. So it's that because you're starting to develop, let's say, SIBO, right, where you're overgrowing certain types of bacteria that are fermenting food in a way that they shouldn't be fermenting it and in a place where they shouldn't be fermenting it and then leaving a lot of those waste byproducts and then also not fermenting positive parts of food where they should be fermenting it, creating anti-inflammatory byproducts you're creating this buildup of waste in the intestines. And eventually that is going to dampen your release of digestive enzymes and hydrochloric acid and bile and all of these different substances that we need to transform that food, right? So it kind of starts with dampness, the bacteria or fungi or whatever, that starts to dampen your actual digestive secret- your secretions, which would be like your spleen chi in Chinese medicine. And then that is a vicious cycle that just gets worse and worse and worse and worse because the less secretions you have, Those secretions are also supposed to kill a lot of those pathogens and keep them at bay. So the pathogens keep growing. You get more and more fungus, bacterial growth, parasitic growth. And eventually the gut becomes so imbalanced that that microbiome doesn't just live here. It's it's not a silo. That microbiome exists throughout the entire body. And there's a constant feedback loop, not only with the physical bugs, but with the cell signaling molecules and inflammatory molecules that they're sending across to different parts of the body. So that gut inflammation that's happening on that localized level is now turning into brain inflammation and high levels of IL-6 and yada, 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 and all these interleukins and inflammatory cytokines. And you're having this chronic state of brain inflammation or dampness. And you're also having this dysbiotic microbiome in the vagina. And you're having perhaps like, In the uterus, right, you're having growths and fibroids and cysts, and there's like endometriosis is so connected to gut dysbiosis and dampness. And it just that dampness or that gut dysbiosis affects every other part of the body. And that's why sometimes the simplest, trendiest lines in health, like Hippocrates saying that all disease begins in the gut really is true. And that's just kind of what I came back to.
0: I don't know about you, but my inner child is screaming right now. <laughs> it's like, I hear it and it's so important. And I've, you know, like studied it in school and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is actually so important and terrifying at the same time. I think that so many of us who like, and I've talked to people who listen to a lot of like nutritional like Max's podcast and and other people who really talk about nutrition and they get so overwhelmed so quickly. Yeah. And it's like terrifying because it's like, oh, it's not like something go to the gym and just work out. There's a sense of lack of control about this internal colony that's so fundamental to our well-being.
1: Well, I think the important thing to note is that while it's going to take a multifaceted approach for all of us who have gut brain or gut skin or gut whatever root cause issues to eventually achieve a really healthy terrain. And you're never gonna get rid of all bad bacteria and you need 20% bad to 80% good at all times. And it's, it's always a balance, right? But it doesn't just involve fancy testing and supplements and gut protocols and killing things off with functional medicine and you know paying thousands of dollars to get there that can and often for many people should be a part of it and i wish to god that insurance would start to cover the freaking gi map test but whatever but it's also not just that so much of gut dysbiosis is driven by stress by our hpa axis by, you know, studies even show that being on a plane, the stress of the deprivation of oxygen before you get on that plane and after you get off that plane totally changes the gut microbiome and creates a level of gut dysbiosis, right? So it's not just, oh, you have to eat a perfect clean diet or you need to like take all these supplements and assess your gut. I think most of it is actually stress-based and is actually emotional and nervous system-based. And I think that that is the route that we all through, you know, free tools slash also some paid tools like therapy slash resources like your book or this podcast or whatever it is, can all start to chip away at because that is how you're going to permanently also keep gut dysbiosis away. Because another piece of it is that once you have something like SIBO, and even if you clear it and you treat it with really fancy functional medicine supplements, the only way to keep it from coming back is to fix your gut motility. Because as soon as you're constipated and you have slow motility, and food is not moving through your intestines at the correct rate, there becomes this bacterial bloom right where that food stops. And so you can easily get SIBO again and just reinfect it again. And gut motility, as much as it's related, yes, to bacterial balance and things like ginger tea can help, gut motility is related to stress and nervous system health and the ability to enter parasympathetic mode and feel safe in your body. So I believe that there's people out there who can absolutely heal their gut dysbiosis simply through nervous system regulation practices and working at that for years and years and years and years because it's also a brain-gut axis.
0: I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to the Embody Lab, which is one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing and the Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, the Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab. And so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. Absolutely. I mean, as a kid, I had severe brain fog. I had a lot of learning disabilities. And, you know, as I got older and we realized that so much of like I had celiacs and I had leaky gut syndrome and all of these other severe inflammatory responses in my gut as well. Then when I started treating that, some of the brain fog went away. But when I started doing trauma therapy, some of the gut stuff went away, which cleared more of the learning disabilities and the brain fog. And so it was like, oh, it's not one access point. There's going to be a multitude of ways into this healing process.
1: Absolutely. And stories like yours and like even saying that out loud are so important because I think that's where science kind of has to catch up. And there are people for sure looking into that and this phenomenon of even things like the placebo effect, right? How powerful the mind is, but also now how powerful the nervous system is, techniques like meditation and how that changes the gut microbiome. You're right, it's not a one access point and it's bi-directional.
0: Yeah, it's bi-directional. Oof, and this is such an important subject matter and I am just so grateful that we're talking about it. And oh, I was gonna say motility. You know, one of the things I I made a joke about like Zumba, but like motility, we can actually, when we move, if we're not ri- holding in a rigidity and like tightness in our organs, which can be also a stress and trauma response, if we can find the motility, the mobility in our organs through movement, it can also help heal as well through, you know, supporting digestion, but also releasing some of the stored emotional or stress response that's being held there.
1: Not only is intentional, fluid, heart-centered movement like dancing, an excellent way to get the body out of that freeze trauma response, but and you know, the inability, like conversely, the inability to properly and fluidly move or even want to, also part of a trauma response. I realized that for so many years of my life being sedentary and my family pattern, being sedentary was our trauma response. We hated exercise. We hated being in our bodies. We were not a family that did anything but lay on the couch and watch TV. It was totally frozen. And I carried that for many years and I blamed myself for it and I beat myself up. Why am I so lazy? Why am I so this? but so much of it was a trauma response. And along my journey, there's just been so many different people and practitioners and guides who have helped me because I really also believe you can't heal alone. You know, even if it's not, again, like a paid functional medicine doctor relationship, there are so many other humans that can help you in unexpected ways. So I had this one, this guy who was a personal trainer, but he was also like a shaman and like intuitive. And I don't know how I linked up with him, but he was like, you don't really need personal training as much as you need massage and like breathing and like trauma release. And he's like, I'll still do personal training with you once a week. And even those training sessions, he had me like stretching and cat cowing most of the time and moving my hips and opening my hips where he was like tricking me into doing this. (laughs) But he had a really specific massage technique and had this really deep connection where he made you breathe. You weren't relaxing and getting a massage. It was deep breath in, deep breath out right now. And I hated it. I didn't want to breathe. I held my breath my whole entire life. That was a big part of my gut issues, still is when I'm stressed. And the way that I was able to make strides in my healing during the time where I was getting weekly massages from him was more than, you know, years of seeing ex doctor or this person. And I still continue to like work with body practitioners who bring the nervous system into the room in that way. As probably my primary tool,
0: Yeah, I mean, that type of body work or somatic based therapy is so fundamental. I mean, like, I think I've had the value of maybe a hundred therapy sessions in one session sometimes yeah. of, of somatics or body work that just opened me up and released so much of what was holding, which I could never have really gotten to if I was just trying to talk my way into it.
1: Oh my God, and I love the way that you speak about that and how much, you know, you're like the verbalizing is you have to bring the body into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, we could verbalize all day. And a lot of us are great at intellectualizing our trauma and talking about what happened to us. And sometimes that keeps us stuck even more so replaying it. It is literally not about even talking about what happened to you. Yes. Owning it, validating yourself, receiving validation from a practitioner who can see you and witness you. That's great. That's a part of it. But if you stay there and you don't just like find someone who can safely guide you to get back into your body to where that stuff is stored, to where it doesn't feel like I'm like, oh yeah, right here is where my mom did this to me. Like, it's just like, oh, I have this incredible need to cry when you touch this part of my body. It's, it looks so different than what we can put words to because I believe you had once said that during the times that a lot of our trauma happened to us, we didn't have the language. We didn't have that frontal lobe develops where we could put words to what we were feeling. It was just a feeling and it was just what our bodies experienced.
0: And we can't process what we don't feel. And we can't feel unless we're home in our body to do that.
1: And we sometimes can't be at home in our own bodies if we're not around other people who are able to be at home in their own bodies. Absolutely. And that's the community piece, like it is so hard to come home to yourself around someone who is so uncomfortable coming home to themselves.
0: Absolutely. And
1: co-regulation. And that's, again, that's the value of working with a therapist too, or, or, you know, finding a friend or a partner who has done the work before you, like someone who came before you and knows how to hold you, knows how to actually hold space and knows that they don't need to empathize by feeling what you're feeling. They need to empathize by standing tall in themselves and their own energy fields and staying strong for you while being a witnesser as you're feeling what you need to feel and also just modeling nervous system regulation for you.
0: A hundred percent. It's modeling that it is safe enough to be home in yourself and process things. Like that's such the beauty of co-regulation because often that wasn't modeled for us or we weren't given the space time permission support to be in our body with what was happening.
1: Yeah. And then we end up seeking out relationships unconsciously that just recreate that dynamic. And that's so difficult until you kind of have that first relationship and not even romantic, but just that first person in your life that you know, believes in you and sees where you are and knows where you can be and is willing to hold that space for you and is willing to be that person for you, that's kind of where things start to shift. And I think for, for me as a woman, I think a lot of times that was like a lot of my sister relationships or like not, not ask, is, my siblings.
0: Yeah, like who was your first person who did that for you?
1: The most prominent person in my life who does that for me is my mentor. She she is actually my physician. She's a functional medicine physician, but she took me on as like her little sister mentee as well because she was like, she saw herself in me, I think. So she became like my big sister mentor and really modeled for me what a healthy nervous system looks like and held the vision. I always tell her that she held the vision for me. And she saw me at my highest self and where I could be. And she recognized that I wasn't there, but she didn't interject herself or her thoughts or opinions into it and was just like, you're going to get there. Yeah, you're going to get there. And and really just was always in my corner in a way that wasn't codependent, wasn't, oh, well, I'm doing this for you, so you need to do this for me, wasn't damp at all. You know, it's like really the dampness really, really, really is such a mirror into what that internal dysregulation manifests in your relationships. And I swear as you clear dampness in your gut, you start to clear dampness in your relationships. It's so wild and vice versa. But like in the least damp way ever of like, I'm totally unattached to the outcome, but I'm just gonna hold space for you. And it's also not about me even having an ego trip that I'm able to do this for you. Like it was such a wild loving relationship that I never experienced before in my life. She was one of the people that really helped me to see like, A, okay, I have value. Like someone like unconditionally loves me. And my partner did that for me as well. But also your romantic partner can get really messy too. So as much as she did <laughs> that for me too, I think more of yeah. my trauma came out there because we were a lot closer. And so there's like so much more to unpack there. But for her, because she was just far enough, yeah, it was so healthy and it really helped me.
0: Mm, it's beautiful. I'm so glad. You have her in your life.
1: Yeah, Yeah. same. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon.
0: <laughs> oh, her name's Gabrielle Lyon?
1: Yeah, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Yeah, when, when I first I saw like, Dr. Oh, you do? Okay, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, we almost had the same last name.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: Someone asked me if I was related to her and I said, check the spelling.
1: <laughs> Can't get too serious now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, as you're talking, I'm remembering... I think one of the first people or the the person who sticks out for me is my eighth grade English teacher. Mm. It was the first person who could see through the cloud that I was walking around with. Like, and I talk about this cloud, like the brain fog cloud, the sort of trauma cloud and how everyone else just saw the cloud. And they saw me as this dumb kid that probably would never even pass high school you know, like was very challenged academically, very challenged to process things in a timely manner. And I remember her pulling me aside and she said, you're so creative and you're so smart and you probably don't even know it yet. Mm. And I remember her giving me extra books to read. Like I was in the English class and she made like an advanced English class just for me. And so like I would read late at night, I would read the books And it would take me a lot longer than everyone else, but like I was so motivated because she believed in me. And I held that belief system, you know, as I went into high school and again was told like that I would never even pass high school, that my IQ score was too low to be a functional adult. And like all of these really terrible things because no one could see past the cloud. I held her voice and I ignored all of theirs. And now I'm a doctor. couple of times over.
1: No, it's so powerful when someone sees you, especially when they see you in a way that you cannot see yourself. It opens up a new God, I'm not going to use this word. I I need a different word than timeline because that's giving manifestation coach, but it opens up a different timeline, right? That's how I'm going to say it. It
0: does. It does.
1: It really gives you a different path. And I think so often in my life about holding the vision and how it is truly holding the vision for someone else involves none of you. It's really a true selfless thing that your ego is not involved in because you're looking for the highest timeline for someone else, even if it's at the expense of you or makes you jealous, whatever it is. And so having, again, like this kind of removed relationship where it's a teacher, an older person, someone who's like is just totally not interjected and it's so beautiful. But I think about it even in the context of like female friendships. And I always think about. When I've had times where female friendships got a little bit too damp and codependent and intertwined and dynamic-y, not only would I realize that they couldn't hold the vision for me because they couldn't see it for themselves, but there was women that I couldn't hold the vision for because whatever, something in them... Triggered me or made me feel small or intimidated me. And I realized that sometimes the kindest thing you can do in those relationships is let them go because you are hindering yourself by not being able to hold the vision for them. Like you really have to kind of audit your relationships and be like, Am I able to just fully hold the vision for these people in my life? Or is there stuff coming up and stuff being triggered around it? And what do I need to clear out? And how can I separate our tasks and realize what's me and what's not me?
0: Ugh. Yes. Such beautiful advice. And because of that advice, you now have 462,108 followers. I refollowed you. You're <laughs> welcome.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much, Scott.
0: <laughs> I aim to validate. You know, speaking of, I, I am, to go back for a moment to that subject matter about like, from going from not being seen, which I think we both know so well. Yeah. To then being very publicly seen. And I'm just curious, like, how have you navigated that? Like, there's an additional attention. There's additional, like, sometimes even I know, like, probably walking down the street and people recognize you. I'm just so curious how you have navigated that, because that's a big flux to go from some trauma experiences of of not feeling seen to being hyper seen.
1: I actually think putting myself out there to be hyper seen was part of the trauma response, honestly, was like well, okay, if these people can see me and if I can be validated here and if I can you know, be of value to people here and get a, like attention for it, essentially a recognition for it rather, then that I must mean something. I must exist. And I didn't realize that at the time. I just didn't. I was so unconscious of it and it just seemed like a natural thing to do and like I was doing it from my heart and I so was, but you're doing it half from your heart and half from your ego when you have no idea what an ego is. So... I think now I'm at a place, honestly, where I don't require being seen in that way in order for me to form an identity. And in fact, being seen in that way is quite conflicting to my now very solid self-identity that does not need other people's opinions or vision interjected. And now I have a lot of conflicts with being seen in that way, and I want to continue being of service. Absolutely. And I think having the platform that I've built allows that. And that's just really where I need to focus it. And I've been realizing more and more that it's like, if I focus on the the value that I can give, the information that I can share and just like that, that's the product. But if I continue to share myself and focus on myself, I'm the product and I don't want that anymore. And I really don't want to be on the internet forever. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you about this. I've wanted to talk to you about this for a long time. And whenever I've thought about this theme, which I'll name in a moment, I'm like, I want it to be with Olivia. And it's like, because there's so much talk. And this is, you know, one of the things about like pop psychology and like wellness culture is like, there's so much talk about the authentic self. And I really want to go into like the pros and the cons. And even is there a possibility of an authentic self? in relation to the platforms on which we exist, which is primarily social media. And so how are you navigating this theme around authenticity and does it even exist?
1: I do not think that it is possible to be your true authentic self if any part of that equation is taking into account others' perception, which is impossible to divorce when you're sharing that authentic self on an online platform to other people.
0: So well said. Ugh, I want to keep diving into this with you because there are two major like, social phenomenons as it relates to authenticity as a public figure that I want to kind of dive into. And I mean, the reality is if you have a media presence in any ways, a social media presence, even if it's 10 followers, you are a public figure.
1: Yeah, you're being perceived, and that's you like you know a, a molecule that's being perceived. What's the physics thing? Like behaves differently.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. moves different. It responds differently when it's being sort yeah. of watched. <laughs> and so the two main social phenomenons that we can dive into are called social avatars and what's also known as cultural code switching. Mm-hmm. So social avatars, for those who are less familiar, it's not the little icon in the corner that like is your uh, little cartoon figure of you although the theory the social theory comes from that sort of conception or cartoon rather but it's it's a construct we create a social avatar is a construct we create and sometimes we even call it a branded self or self branding
1: I call it my cardboard cutout
0: <laughs> You call it your cardboard cutout yes it is a curated self sp- for a specific audience
1: Yeah and it's I you don't want it to be that way. It's like I would more than anything not want to, and I'm not consciously doing it, but it's absolutely impossible not to do. And that is so self-betraying.
0: Yeah, yes, it is. I mean, here's the reality of it. I am a different person when I am teaching somatic trauma therapy than when I am on this podcast, than when I am, which is closer to how I am with friends, Yeah. And it's different than how I talk to my elders. It is different, which...
1: Which is okay.
0: Which is okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, which is okay, but it's maybe an extreme form for the internet because that's not relationship.
0: Yeah. And so we create, like, if I say certain words, if I come across a certain way on my social media, I get more likes. And I internalize that as this is the version that people like. And I not only do I create that version, but I look at how can I do more of that? And that becomes more this social avatar. I mean, the extreme version is in 2020, there was an article in the Washington Post about this woman who had all these photos, a Japanese woman who had all these photos of her on motorcycles. And it turned out to be a 60-year-old man. Who was using like facial modification software.
1: Wow. Interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. And it's an extreme version of like a a social avatar. And he was living his life as this 20 something year old Japanese woman. And when he was asked by the Washington, I believe it was by the Washington Post, like, what up? He was like, first of all, when I posted photos of myself on the motorcycle, no one responded. And as it got further and further down the rabbit hole of what was happening, it's like, I also got to explore a side of me that otherwise I'd never done, like a sensual side.
1: Yeah. It just brings me to the thought of like, yeah, maybe the real us is not massively likable on a mass scale. And there's this (laughs) part, no, seriously. And there's this crazy, egotistical, narcissistic shadow side in all of us, and especially those of us who choose to engage on the internet that can't handle that. And thus, in order to explain to the ego and the inferiority complex that lies within us, no, I am worthy, we tap into our internal AI algorithm. Oh, I get more likes when I do this. Okay, like especially those of us who have trauma and are good at tracking your girl, as you pointed out you really do start to track and you develop your own algorithm of this is what people like, this is what gets them to like me. This is and I can't tell you how much I think about this and like write about this and never share it with anyone because two years ago I took three weeks off of like work entirely and social media for the first time in 10 like I've literally been on the internet vlogging since I was 19. So for the first time in 10 years. Cause I I realized I had never met myself without who I am on social media. I was like, I have no idea who I actually am because I've been living partially as this cardboard cutout. So who am I without the internet? What would I do if I wasn't going to post it on my story that day? What would Olivia do if no one could see what she was doing? Like, what would I actually want to do? And I had the most incredible three weeks of my life. And when those three weeks were over, my partner said to me, do you really have to go back? And he was like, I was just getting used to this version of you. And he was like heartbroken. And I think that's still a really big issue. And it's something that I'm like, especially now that I'm getting married, I'm really resolved to figuring out how on earth I can move forward. And I think a lot of that's going to have to involve continuing to share information but stuff that's like not clickbaity and sexy and is like again just to be of service and just like it's just gonna have to I'm just gonna have to go about the internet differently and like take a pay cut and whatever like you know not put the effort into like who's gonna look at this yada yada making it aesthetic like I, if I were to continue going forward on the internet but sometimes I even wonder that but I wanted to share that when that all happened I thought a lot about religion and how our world today like collectively in my perception is a lot less religious like mm. as a whole you know we're a lot less like reliant on religion for like community for our morals to keep us connected to a bigger meaning of something because we have so much other stuff to interact with a lot of millennials and gen z especially are like atheists and what do you mean god like that's crazy that's so silly of you it's just science science science
0: i believe tiktok is the religion now
1: a- exactly right a- <laughs> but no 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 that's exactly my point so, yeah. I realized that religion was replaced by social media. And I wrote this thing. It's like a short thing. Do you mind if I read it to you? Yeah,
0: please. Oh, I'm excited. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I said, for the longest time, people across religions and spiritual sects have relied on their God watching or the universe and karma watching, right? Depending on what belief system you're in, as a reason to display self discipline, a reason to exhibit morality and act in line with a set of values, a stopgap of sorts for bad behavior perhaps because simply honoring themselves is not enough. Now, why it's not enough is a whole different topic of exploration within itself, and I suspect it relates to our own self-worth and feelings of inferiority, our own fear of living for ourselves without the validation of others, yada yada. But in our culture now, where a connection with God and sin and repenting and religion is not as commonplace, God-watching as an excuse to why we should display good behavior does not hold as much weight. In our culture now, many people who still hold that need of external stopgaps replace God with the eyes of fellow people, which has created the power of social media acting as God. So other people watching on social media is sometimes the only reason we discipline ourselves to boast about the results of that discipline and affirm our specialness, whether consciously or unconsciously, to commodify or monetize the results of that discipline like an attractive body that others want. I can give you the keys, I can show you how. Other people watching on social media is sometimes the only reason we dress a certain way, to post for validation. Other people watching on social media is sometimes the only reason we go places, to show off that experience, or perhaps even the means that allowed that experience. Other people watching on social media, sometimes the only reason we experience things in general, again, to show that we did it and affirm the specialness, and sometimes it's even the only reason that we act in integrity with one's perceived values because the world of public social media lends itself to public consequences. Beyond God, beyond other people and the God that is social media, who is watching that matters? Can you do all of these things for you and you alone? Can you display self-discipline, enjoy a sunset, experience an experience without anyone needing to know? The greatest rebellion and personal healing is to do all of these things off of social media for you and no one else. And this is where the journey to true freedom begins.
0: (laughs) Oh, damn. Terminator 3, damn.
1: (laughs) It's become God.
0: That hits so deep. And I can't wait for your book to come out. If that's not pressure to go write your book.
1: If this is what my book is going to be about, I'm going to have a lot more crying to do.
0: I'll hold you. No, <laughs> oh, like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's so powerful, and it's so needed to be said. I mean, to even go back to the cardboard cutout of ourselves and the social avatars of ourselves, and as you say, like the replacement of you know what was once religion, now being the things the witness of the other, where we are living our life to tell the story of it in order to be witness, because perhaps it is. Not enough sense of self worth that we can be witnesses to ourselves in the visceral experience of living.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: The research on social avatars, just to even talk about that, demonstrates that the further we are living more and more as this avatar self, as this cardboard cutout of ourselves, the further we get away from our true, authentic self, the greater the likelihood for depression. It is like almost like a self-abandoned disassociation in order to appease and and be seen. Yeah. And it's tragic. I mean, the rates of depression in young teenage girls has risen primarily because of this phenomenon of of living their social avatar. They become too shy at school. They don't have the communication skills because one of the things the social avatar does is it allows us to be unfiltered, which can allow us to be unhinged as well in public spaces.
1: Whoa. Why? Because you'll also receive validation for that as being quirky or-
0: trolley, or- Yeah, like
1: making a prank video. Oh my God. It gives us permission.
0: And there's less consequences. We live behind a cartoon version of ourselves. We live behind the cardboard and the cardboard doesn't feel the empathetic impact. And so we, not only is there a greater sense of depression, but there's a lesser degree of empathy that is being built because we are living in this divide between our social mm-hmm. avatar and our authentic self.
1: And it's also like, I, yeah, I could, if I'm a troll, right? I could say whatever I-
0: This is a really depressing episode.
1: I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But it's something that needs, like, you know, you have to feel sometimes the sadness of something before you can make a change, right? So I just think of it even from like a, if I were a troll and I were to be like, well, I can say whatever I want to this person because it's not even really that person that I'm talking to. It's just a cardboard cutout of them. There is no human to human. And of course, teenage girls are depressed because how could you ever live up to a version of yourself that you created that's not you? How will those two ever merge and coexist as one? They can never be one. There will always be A difference and so you are constantly split into two everywhere that you go. Damn, are we supposed to just not have social media? Like what's our answer?
0: (laughs) This show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools for transformation that are created by Omala. Oof, even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever, like an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. They have this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving for. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into a profound insight, and then you can plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. I mean, damn, if that's not bold, deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live in a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Omala. Omala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to Omala.com. That's O M A L A.com. Use the discount code Dr. Scott10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. Here's an, just even another thing. Like, I've never used a filter in a camera because I'm like 80 and I don't know how to use technology. Like 82. Like 82. 80, yeah. 83. We're talking about yeah. the birth year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I was dating someone who had a filter on all of their photos. And...
1: That's always interesting.
0: So interesting. And I had never used a filter and I still don't have a filter or know how to use it because I... I'm like, whatever.
1: <laughs> Even you saying I still don't have a filter shows me that you've never used a filter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, you don't have to buy a separate thing to plug it onto your computer to get the filter? No? Okay.
1: What do you mean on your
0: computer? You know, the, the computer in your hand.
1: Oh, 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 on your phone. No, no, no. You just go into stories and you scroll at the bottom. It's just they're there. <laughs> God bless you.
0: God bless everyone. And by God, we mean those who are also on social media.
1: Exactly. Yep. And by that, I mean Mark Zuckerberg.
0: Mark, oh, Mark, he just won a, a like a Taekwondo situation. I'm so proud of him. I love that. I love that for him. <laughs> Going back, to the filter thing is like, what, how do you then exist? How do you feel about yourself when you can't walk around in the world with a filter on? Like there's that dissonance between the avatar self that gets to be filtered, that gets to be curated, that gets to choose the words that get the, the most likes. And the version of you... Like, this individual was more shy in real life because they didn't have all of the protective curation tools.
1: I think I'm going to start posting ugly pictures on social media.
0: Good luck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but I get what you're saying because, like, the reality is sometimes we're ugly. Like, sometimes we're not cute. And so to, like, constantly not only walk around posting as your best outfit, best makeup, but also filter face changed, features different that you'll never have. What kind of internal conflict and pressure does that create to where you have nowhere else to turn but to escape yourself?
0: It's true. I mean, I wake up in Versace every day, so I'm always looking it. cute. But I hear for you how that could be true.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear how it could be a problem for me, just the, the peasant. But no, even, even <laughs> no, like, like as a woman going true. out into the world not wearing makeup sometimes, like that's an exercise that I do where I'm like, I'm just going to do this and raw dog it so that I can know that, yeah, this is still my face and it's okay that this is my face, but people treat me differently, I'll tell you that. Yeah,
0: for sure. I mean, I had a relative recently reach out and they're like, you seem so good in your life and because I follow you on social media and I was like having such a shit day (laughs) and I was like, fuck you, ask me how I am. First of all, don't ever reach out to me on social media if you're a relative of mine. You have my phone number.
1: Yeah, that's my cardboard cutout. That's not me. (laughs) Don't even watch my stories.
0: (laughs) Right? Stop talking to my cardboard cutout version of me. Stop talking to my avatar as though it's real. And then I realized this relative, I was like, they don't recognize there's a difference. If I'm posting something on social media that's like, oh, this is like a practice we can do to relieve stress. And I'm like smiling in the photo because I'm actually enjoying it too. And I I love to be able to offer it. That doesn't mean that's the global truth of how the rest of my day is or how my week is. You're looking at a curated moment that I am choosing how I language, how I'm dressed, how I appear.
1: Yeah, you're at work.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm at work. In the same way that I could do a video of me crying, which is also not representative of how I am through my whole day or my whole week. It can go in any direction.
1: We just believe it so deeply. Like we believe whatever we see in that moment. as truth. And that's so scary.
0: I had a really good friend of mine in college who was on a, a soap show. That's what they're called, right? Soap. A soap opera? Soap opera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really am 83 at sometimes. Mm-hmm. And we were walking on the street and this woman came up to her and said, oh, you're on my show. And I was like, what? She could only see my friend Jen as her character and could only recognize her in relation to her TV. And I was like, oh, because that is truth. Hmm. That is the truth of like how this person is perceived. And it's like, of course, we perceive others as their social avatar, so they will act as such. And if they don't, there's too much dissonance.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: And this is the other thing about like cultural code switching is like code switching is like when we have two more languages. Yeah,
1: I know about code switching in the sense of a racial perspective, which is such a wild thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it has typically been about like adjusting your language or your syntax, your grammatical structure, your behavior, your tone, your appearance. If you're in a underrepresented group or minority group to fit more into the dominant culture. But what we're seeing in social sciences is that the same application of cultural code switching is being used in relation to our social avatars. We are adjusting our language, our syntax, our grammatical structure, again, our tone, our appearance, our behavior to get the most amount of likes. And this is like, and in the hopes that we're being authentic, it's a really you know, hard path to be on is like, how do I be this authentic self? But in order to get even followers or even, like I said before, I'm going to switch my syntax, my behavior when I'm going to teach trauma therapy, I'm going to switch my tone. I'm going to talk perhaps a little more like this and a little more trauma informed when I'm teaching versus when I'm in a conversation with a friend and I'm going to use more swear words. Yeah. But I a mean, it, that awkward. also makes
1: me think of the fact that we do do that in the original social network of life, right? Like yeah. We, yeah. Do we
0: do that at work.
1: So we're Sweet. if we're in an office setting, we're code switching so that we can get more likes at work. We can get a better performance review. We can be perceived as more professional, yada, yada. So is that really a completely evil thing? Is that a normal human response? Is that part of us being multifaceted? And even if those two things are true at the same time, where it's reasonable in normal human situations, but taken to an extreme in in social media situations, it's like, where's the balance and how can one show up on social media with awareness of that and try to compromise, like, ooh.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to even come up with an answer. I'm more like, we're in the complexity of it in that way because it's like, this is an aspect. We do do this kind of cultural code switching. We're not forced to do it often for our own preservation safety unless we're in a specific subgroup or culture in which that means our preservation safety. But we use the same tools of that cultural code switching to get, like you said, better performance reviews to make sure or just to shift. Like I said, I'm not going to swear as much in front of my grandparents. Yeah. I'll probably swear more. Let's be real.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But aren't also the best grandparents, like older people in general, they're the ones who don't code switch.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Once you get to a certain age, they just start talking however they want. And they're like, I'm old, so I can do this. It's true. And they just project, like like they're the wise ones where should we just be doing that? Because I think also the most likable people are the people that I respect the most in settings of at least social settings, right? I'm not talking about those very real instances of self-preservation where one has to do that to quite literally stay safe and alive. That's very different. But when people are not code switching in non-threatening social situations where they're the same with one friend as they are with another, as they are with a server at a restaurant, as they are with whoever else it is, like someone who's a politician that walks up to them. Those are the people that I really respect. But again, also, is that still a manufactured <laughs> version of them? Ooh, it's, getting, it's getting shitty complex. getting meta.
0: <laughs> it's getting meta, girls and boys and friends and all the pronouns. Yeah, it's hard to navigate. You know, when I first started social media years ago, I was talking in such an unauthentic voice. And it was like, you know, I was teaching a lot of yoga then and I would write these things and I was like, this isn't who I am. I'm a retired drag queen and a stand-up comedian who didn't do well. And... (laughs) And all of these other things, and it was like, this feels such like a limited scope of my voice and my tone, and I just stopped social media for like three years, yeah I was just like, this feels so disingenuous, and I started it back up in October, and I have to say it's felt so much more authentic, which has like some spiciness to it, it has some depth to it, it has like a more full range that it feels more representative of who I am, yeah, and it, it just in my body, it feels better.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's still curated.
1: Yeah. It's so hard when there's two opposing truths that exist at the same time. Because it's like, obviously you're getting closer. And I think the best gauge is how does this feel in my body? Am I dissociating because this isn't me? Am I, you know, how many times am I reading my caption over and over again? And how many different minds am I reading or like perceiving it in? Right. Because like, Sometimes I find myself rewatching my stories over and over because I'm just seeing how it would be perceived in different people's lenses, you know?
0: For sure. So
1: sick. It's like sickening. But I think that what we can do is like what you did, really take a break, get to know ourselves. Don't post things on social media. Do things just for you. Develop a really strong sense of self, a really powerful sense of self-esteem because I really think that a lack of self-esteem is the root of all problems and then you think of how that's the solar plexus chakra and that is the gut and the microbiome like it really all goes back there and i think that's where if the self-esteem is weak or the solar plexus is weak that's where the ego comes in to protect like and that's where the codependency comes in that's really the root of everything right i think self esteem is the root of everything i think about that a lot i've shared some of that writing on instagram but that's so important and sometimes you just can't do that on social media, just like sometimes you can't become your highest self when you're still in a friendship or a relationship with someone that's not right for you. you know, like you, Sometimes you need to distance yourself from people and sometimes also social media.
0: Yeah. In, in the complexity of what we're talking about with like, is it authentic? Can you be authentic? I would love to play a game with you called Adam Grant versus Brene Brown. The two psychology titans dueling it over what really is Authenticity. 10 round winner, winner takes it all. So I would like to read something with you. And Olivia. Yep. Organic Olivia. (laughs) Would you like to play Adam Grant, Titan number one? Sure. Or, oh, you're just, you're ready to play Adam Grant. Absolutely. Okay. Then I will be Brene Brown. I love this. All right, so there's 10 rounds. So I'll have you read the first response from Adam Grant about authenticity, and then I will read the first, the corresponding response of Brene Brown around authenticity. Are you ready? Okay. Round one.
1: Authenticity means erasing the gap between what you firmly believe inside and what you reveal to the outside world.
0: Oh no, you didn't, Adam Grant. I, Brene Brown, think the core of authenticity is the courage to be imperfect, vulnerable, and to set boundaries. Round two. Adam? Round two.
1: For most people, be yourself is actually terrible advice.
0: Oh. Brene says, don't be yourself is terrible advice, Adam. Trying to weaponize authenticity feels gimmicky and optimistic.
1: Or opportunistic.
0: I, you know, I have to say, like, there is this whole, like, weaponizing and monetizing authenticity into which it doesn't feel authentic, too.
1: Yep. And I think our little AI brain algorithms figure that out and are like, ooh, how can I be more authentic in this way that's really contrived? It's so bad.
0: Yeah. And we don't realize
1: we're doing it. We truly, truly don't.
0: We don't. And, and, like, when I see people, like, record a video of themselves crying on social media, and I have a heart. Like I feel for them, but I also, you know, I used to be a director and I go, how many takes did this take?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. What was the process of like setting the phone up?
0: What was the process of setting the camera up?
1: Did you stop crying for a moment and then start, you know, recently I had had just had a really good cry session and my like face was still a little wet with tears and whatnot. And I was like, in this moment, I'm taking a really good reflection out of it, which is that if I didn't have this cry session, I would have held that emotion in all week. And it would have turned into depression, that like type of depression that I'm like, I can't really figure out what's wrong, but it just underneath the surface, I feel helpless. Whereas because I acted on the emotion, put on a really sad song, felt it out, yada, yada. So I got on camera and was like, hey guys, you know, I just had a really good cry session. I want to let you know like that that sometimes that's really needed. And this might be a reminder for you, whatever. percent. So I think that was a situation where I was trying to be really authentic and it would have felt inauthentic actually, if I recorded while I was still mid cry. Yeah. So that's where maybe I do disagree with his first statement of like totally erasing the gap between what I'm feeling inside or believing inside and what I'm revealing. If I totally revealed that sacred moment of me crying, that would have made it not authentic. But because I came with a reflection after the fact, I think that was a little bit closer to what real authenticity quote unquote would be.
0: Yeah. And if you're listening to this or watching this and you've had a good cry and recorded it, fine cool. There's also, you're giving other people permission. Like we're not here shame gaming that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally. And sometimes it's a form (laughs) of witnessing yourself, right? Especially if you're just taking a video of yourself crying and maybe not sharing it or like capturing that moment in time so that you can remember what you were feeling and remember there was a time where you were crying like this. You know, there's so many different reasons that we document and create art from our human experiences. And so I don't want to discount that either, but I think that, yeah, when it comes into the public arena of public perception, there's going to be motives that we might not even admit to ourselves.
0: Yeah. I remember in my mid-20s, I had another teacher who was so special to me. And I could only cry if I imagined that she was in the room with me. Mm. And I remember the point where I could start to cry where it wasn't reliant on her as a witness because she wasn't in the room. Yeah. And there's and so I I think back to what you said about like the god of social media as like an additional witness of like also are we relying on these external witnesses in yeah. order to have this permission and which is fine and then when do we get the permission for ourselves? Also.
1: Yeah, there's something that feels really different and almost more not shameful, but just more like deep to just cry and never tell anyone about it and just have that moment for yourself and be like, that was really sad. Then it almost makes it a little less sad if you're like, well, at least I could turn this around on social and make a good post out of it. Like at least it you know, meant something for that, but it's not enough for it to mean something for you. And maybe you're denying how deep the meaning was if you're commodifying it and that almost softens the blow.
0: Yeah, so true. You ready for round three? Yep. Round three.
1: Nobody wants to see your true self. We all have thoughts and feelings that we believe are fundamental to our lives, but that are better left unspoken.
0: Wow, Adam, says Brene. Authenticity is not the mindless spewing of whatever you're thinking, regardless of how your words affect other people.
1: How much you aim for authenticity depends on a personality trait called self-monitoring. Low self-monitor, high authenticity. High self-monitor, low
0: authenticity. Brene Brown says, real authenticity, snap, 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 actually requires major self monitoring and isn't the lack of self monitoring Authenticity requires almost constant vigilance and awareness about the connections between our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. It also means staying mindful about our intention. I'm going to pause there because it might be semantics of language here, but constant mm-hmm. vigilance is a term I would often more associate with trauma. Yeah. Like that constant scanning, constant watching of oneself. And I find that actually a trauma response as opposed to living from your authentic self. Like there's a certain flow that happens, like you're in flow when you're living from your authentic self that you're not actually high tracking, especially not from a vigilant place.
1: Yeah, there's such a fine line between having a trauma response version of high self-awareness of, well, I can't say this because that would be coming from my ego a little bit or hurting that person or I like being so sensitive to being embarrassed or so sensitive to taking up space. There's so many ways that that can manifest in someone and high self-awareness and high self-tracking and monitoring can actually be like a way to avoid the true self, right? It can be used as a coping mechanism. And then there's that other case where, The low self awareness can actually be really harmful to other people and might not make you authentic as much as it might make you an asshole. (laughs) Because if you're someone who has that low self monitoring, you might really not be thinking about how much space you're taking up in a conversation or XYZ. It's really finding that divine balance between the two. But I also think there's an element of this where. Aiming for authenticity is like the antithesis of authenticity.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well said. So
1: he's like, how much you aim for it depends on a self. Like, yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Oof. It's like discovering yourself versus forcing yourself into being. That's not the greatest analogy in terms of this, but like, I don't know if you can force authenticity as opposed to like discover and allow. I guess is what I mean.
1: Yeah. If you were really to discover and allow and then also share it. Yeah. And you wanted to be completely authentic about it the next time around, you'd almost have to be a person who literally discovers it, has the authentic moment, thought, experience, puts it out there in a way that isn't overthought, but still sensitive enough because of that middle ground self awareness and then put it out into the world and never looked at the result of it and like never monitored a single comment or like interacted. But then it would also be a one way. Yeah. Okay, next one. Round five.
0: (laughs) Round five.
1: Author A.J. Jacobs spent a few weeks trying to be totally authentic. He announced to an editor that he would try to sleep with her if he were single and informed his nanny that he would like to go on a date with her if his wife let him. He informed a friend's five-year-old daughter that the beetle in her hands was not napping, but dead. He told his in-laws that their conversation was boring. I did tell a two-year-old that a dog was blind today, but I... I was doing so more so in the sense to, like, let her know. I didn't know that she didn't know what blind was. So that might have been a mistake and interesting.
0: (laughs) Well, let's see what Brene says. (laughs) Psychological Titan Brene. Those behaviors don't reflect the courage to be imperfect, vulnerable, or to set boundaries. They actually reflect crude, negative gender stereotypes. We need to create cultures that invite people to take off these gender straitjackets. Hmm. round six
1: pay attention to how we present ourselves to others and then strive to be the people we claim to be rather than changing from the inside out you bring the outside in i agree with that
0: okay i mean we'll talk about the developmental psychology in a sec for sure <laughs> Brené says we are sick of the hustle and the bullshit and the fakery Woo, she said that we are tired of trying to live up to the impossible ideas and we're no longer willing to orphan important parts of ourselves to achieve success. Most of us will take messy and real over pretending and people-pleasing every time. Snap. Oof.
1: Will we really take messy and real over pretending and people-pleasing? Because Reddit does not agree.
0: Reddit does <laughs> not agree. We just checked Reddit.
1: No, it's like when you look at how people talk about whatever public figures on Reddit, like... The more like messy that they are, the more people run with that and criticize. And then the more they're like, they they essentially want them to be someone who people pleases them. Like people don't know what they want and people don't know what they'll take. It's not even about other people. It's it's, you're not being authentic for other people. (laughs) That's the whole point. You're being authentic for you, which is why I think his piece was right about be who you strive to be, not who other people essentially want you to be or what type of authenticity they'd be comfortable with.
0: Yeah. And let's remember, like, we don't develop a sense of self in a vacuum. Our sense of self is in reflection to the outside environment and those in it. I don't just assume I'm funny. I say a joke, you laugh at my joke, I take that reflection, I internalize it, and I recognize I'm funny. It's much more nuanced than simply an internal or external component of authenticity either. Like, authenticity is... Our relationship to ourselves in relation to the environment and the bi directional reflection that's happening there.
1: Yeah. And I think it's like striving to be the people that we claim to be. We'll know if we're being those people if other people are responding in a healthy and happy way.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: But it's not necessarily up to them to decide if we're being real, but it's just more up to us to decide if the relationship is flowing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ready for round number seven? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Round number seven.
1: Authenticity is a virtue, but just as you can have too little authenticity, you can also have too much.
0: Bernays says, Aristotle or not? (laughs) Snap. I don't believe in too much authenticity. I believe authenticity has parameters, and once you're outside of them, you're not talking about authenticity any longer. Round number eight? Yep. Round number eight.
1: Virtues have a Goldilocks flavor. They can be too hot or too cold. The goal is to develop just the right amount of each one. That's true for authenticity. Have too little and you'll be seen as a faker, a liar, or a jerk.
0: Brene says, too much authenticity can be a lack of boundaries, an issue with role clarity, and an intentional issue, lots of things. And to really understand where folks are taking a wrong turn, we need to identify exactly where and why they're overstepping and or oversharing calling it too much authenticity, steers us away from the right intervention.
1: hmm agreed.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's that thing that we were talking about even with the crying of like, it's an expansion of the human experience, which is important to share, but is it authentic to that moment? Is it true to that moment? Yeah. Is it have an element of performance to it?
1: It's called vulnerability porn.
0: <laughs> vulnerability porn. Oh, yes. Round number nine.
1: The risks of authenticity are more pronounced for women than men. Sadly, that puts them at risk for being judged, weak, or unprofessional. For being judged as weak, he should have said, or unprofessional. I think our best chance at changing it is to help women and men find a balance between being authentic and being effective.
0: Brene says... Do women struggle because they're overly authentic or is it because organizational cultures still force people to adhere to a narrow and suffocating way of showing up? Damn. There's a little keep your mouth shut and follow the rules and it will be okay here. Where's the line? What about race, age, ability, sexual orientation, authenticity is okay as long as it looks like what? Whom? Tricky. Round number 10
1: sincerity is a better way to grow than authenticity. Rather than being content with our authentic selves, we'll push ourselves to become our ideal selves. I think it will lead us to set appropriate boundaries on sharing. We won't be looking to make our existing selves more transparent. We'll be trying to become a higher version of ourselves. I really like his growth perspective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I do too. And Bernays says, we need a closer inspection of cultures that don't invite whole, integrated people to bring their ideas and unique contributions to the table. We need braver, more authentic leaders. We need cultures that support the idea that vulnerability is courage and also the birthplace of trust, innovation, learning, risk-taking, and having tough conversations. What do you think?
1: I really agree with both of them. You know, at some points, Adam really had my heart. At some points, Brene was speaking my language. They're both right at so many different times. And I think he has a really nice balance of saying that our goal is to kind of show up as who we want to be, not just who we are authentically at this moment, because that could be a person that is not in alignment with who our soul, our higher self is like asking us to be. And Brene is saying, okay, but there's a fine line. We should be able to show up flawed, human, and show that authentic part of ourselves. While still striving to lead with courage and a certain amount of idealism. But I think she's very much more like that radical self acceptance. Like she's more of the feminine, right? The, not because she's a woman, but just because of like the yin side of it. And he's more the yang side of it, of like pushing you to be better. And she's more like accept yourself exactly as you are. And I think that real authenticity is a mix of both of them.
0: Oof, touchdown. <laughs> Yeah. I love I and I so appreciate that because it is I think it's just so nuanced and like we're figuring it out as opposed to we have figured it out what this authenticity is. So, I'd like to play one final game with you called Too Fast to Curate. And I'm going to say a word or phrase and I want you to say the first and fastest response. And this is why I call it Too Fast to Curate is because For those of us who have a lot of time as part of our profession to curate what we say, I think it's important to balance it out with a little bit of practice of non-curation. Okay. You ready? Are you nervous?
1: Yeah. Am I saying back a single word or I'm saying back?
0: You can say back a word, a phrase, an animal sound.
1: Oh, okay. Great.
0: Yeah. You ready?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm ready.
0: It's going to be like a lightning round situation. Okay. Okay. First word. Grease knuckles. Sandy. (laughs) Second word, peach lips.
1: The booty emoji.
0: (laughs) Freckled french fries.
1: Delicious.
0: Dairy queen queen. Want it. Don't stop the. Feeling. Squeezy wheezy pleezy.
1: Lemon peasy.
0: (laughs) Can't or won't put this in the microwave. Anything. The closest Chick-fil-A is.
1: Not in my state.
0: Debbie Downer or Dennis the Menace?
1: Betty Boop Downer. (laughs) That's an inside joke.
0: Shake, shake, shake. Shake your. Booty. Razzle, dazzle. Razzled. (laughs) Hot or not? Cold. Jazz hands.
1: Round of applause.
0: Peter Piper picked a pecker.
1: Childhood nursery rhymes.
0: (laughs) We did it. This is the total authentic uncurated you to the world.
1: Interesting experience. Apparently, I have no brain cells. <laughs> Not a brain cell.
0: No brain cells. Do you feel like you were filtering at all?
1: A little bit, maybe. Yeah, but I was trying to really pick that first thing. But I think it was always like, "What's the first thing I can pick that makes sense?"
0: But apparently, booty for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like booty going on. There's a lot, there's of- <laughs> a lot, a
0: lot of booty. I mean, it might have been the prompts, but it's no longer organic, Olivia. It's Olivia Booty. Perfect. Is your new social avatar, your new cardboard cutout.
1: That sounds great. I have a leg day later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If anything, in this podcast, we have now discovered your new social avatar name. Yeah. And you are so welcome. Thank you so much, my love, for being on this show and bringing your brilliance and your authentic courageous imperfect and perfect self i almost said booty but i filtered that
1: i like that you should have said booty
0: i know i know you work hard on that leg day <laughs> and <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us it's been such an honor and a pleasure to hang out with you again
1: thank you for having me <laughs> My pleasure.
0: thank you for listening to the gently used human podcast with dr scott lyons and friends Visit GentlyUsed.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And show some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other Gently Used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today.